Our Lord, we ask that in these few moments together that your sovereign hand would be over this room in our hearts, guiding, protecting, leading, convicting, encouraging through the means of your word. Uh, It is our bread for life. It's our water to drink. It is the oxygen that we breathe. And so we pray that the power of God's word would stand out to us. Um, We pray that we would push away the voices that cease to speak to us that are not God's words, God's truth. We pray that we would, even in our own voices, the things that we speak to ourselves, that God's word would triumph over them. Keep us from distraction. Allow us to be attentive to God's word this morning. We need your help for this. Make this word alive to us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Life often takes us on paths that we can't predict, that we couldn't script ourselves, and that we sometimes, to be honest, cannot make any sense of. Uh, We find ourselves often in places that we never intended to be, among people we wouldn't have picked ourselves, and in circumstances where we might think, whether for good or for bad, man, I didn't think that this is what my life was going to look like at this point when I got here. And not only do we think about the present in this way, but some of us, myself included, obsess about the future. Where will I be in 10 years? Will my life get worse? Will it get any better? How will my life look like? What will happen years from now? We would love to look into a magic ball just to know that things at the end of it all, when all things are said and done, things are going to be okay for us and we're going to be happy. We have that desire. It's why over 30% of Americans who took a poll recently said that they believe that the stars in astrology can tell us something about our lives. Over 30% of Americans desiring to know what's coming, what's ahead for me, because we have this desire. It's why we have fortune tellers and, and why we act like we don't care about what the fortune cookie told us. But then secretly when we open it up in a corner, we look at the small little rectangular piece of paper and say, I think I'm going to keep this. Because we so desperately want to believe these words on the paper that say stuff like, a dream that you had will finally come true soon. Just wait. Or another, a lifetime of happiness is about to reveal itself to you. It's right around the corner. I've been across the table from people at Chinese restaurants tell me and open up these fortune cookies and say, these things are really silly, aren't they? And then they'll neatly fold it up and put it in their pocket hoping that somehow this small piece of paper will come true. I remember even myself, a few years ago when we lived in the city, I would often drive down this street by this really shady-looking building in Philadelphia, and there was a neon flashing sign that was on the front of this building that said psychic readings and tarot cards. And I would drive by this building often wondering who would possibly be so desperate to go into that place and pay with someone actual money to reveal bogus predictions to them. Who in their right mind would do that? Uh, But even for me, as I drove week after week past this building, I myself started thinking as questions about my life and our future started becoming more unclear and uncertain, my refrain actually changed. And my refrain became, what if I went and maybe I could decide and figure out what's going to happen in my life? Because I started to realize we all at some level just want to know where is life headed? Where is it going? Because at the end of the day, I think we want to know that in the grand scheme of things, all the way down to the smaller, finer details of our lives, 
that these years of effort and energy and time and breath are leading to something good and something meaningful. Do you feel that? Is anyone here wondering why you are where you are right now? Why you are experiencing what you are experiencing right now? I wonder if there's anyone here in need of encouragement because you have anxiety about your future or even fear as the future looms and you're not sure where you are headed. Dear friends, we have God's word this morning. And I'm so thankful that in the midst of these questions that lay heavy on our hearts, perhaps even this morning, that we don't have to feel lost. We don't have to be hopeless or helpless. God's word for us this morning has some real truth and some real encouragement for us to believe and to be reassured by in light of some of these heavy questions that often flood our hearts and our minds. This morning, we're in the last chapter of Acts 28, the first 16 verses that Keith read for us this morning. And would you believe that we have preached 37 sermons in Acts? We're at the, at the last mark. We have one more sermon this week and next week, and then we're done. And we're going we're gonna to start seeing what God has been working towards in these words of the book of Acts. And as this week, I was praying and studying not only thinking about the text before us this morning, but even looking further back at the book of Acts, one of the things that I want us to hear and believe and be convinced by through God's word this morning is that God is sovereignly and providentially orchestrating every single detail of your life and mine. God is sovereignly providentially orchestrating every single detail of our lives. I want us to see that the sovereign providence of God is at work in the life of the apostle Paul that we will read in. Hear me, as you hear that statement, sovereignty or, or providence, it can sound like a, a weighty, sort of like a ethereal, uh, theological term. But would you hear me? Sound theology always becomes practical. And this morning, I want us to hear there are a few, there are a few doctrines that are more practical than knowing this, that our good and loving creator actively, purposefully governs all things to bring about his perfect plan in and through our lives for our good and his glory. This is theology coming down into our hearts onto the ground. Because would you know this morning that this God who is with Paul is with you. As you hear Paul's story, the God that Paul worships and the God who leads and protects in this story is the one who does so for you as well and for me as we walk this journey of life. And so, under the heading of the sovereign providence of God in this text, we have three different scenes within these 16 verses of Acts 28. Three different scenes, and from these three different scenes, I want us to see three different things from each scene. So three scenes, three things I want us to see. The first of those is that Paul is unmoved when he should be rattled. Two, I want us to see that Paul's life is written into the story of others. And third, that the story of others are actually written into the, the life and story of Paul. So first... Paul is unmoved when he should be rattled. Uh, you'll realize that 
as we read through, things will start popping up at you within these different scenes. So pay attention as we even read through this passage, Acts 28, the first 16 verses. And so as we left off last week, if you remember where Paul was, he was with this ship of people, people loaded onto this ship and going through this two-week life-threatening journey at sea. And, and what happens is that eventually the, the miraculous God who is with Paul saves these people on the ship. Their boat shipwrecked onto an island. As God promised, they were saved. These people miraculously saved by God. Every single soul on that ship, 276 people to be exact, were saved. You've got prisoners on there. You've got sailors and soldiers on there. And who but our man Paul, the apostle Paul, saved. And then it's on the heels of chapter 27 that chapter 28 verses 1 picks up. Reading from verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold so they shipwrecked on the island not even sure where they landed because you've got to remember they they lost their bearings at sea the 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 tempest actually threw them for miles they didn't know where they were and then they land and the text says i guess we landed in malta this place is called malta though they are saved you got to remember they're saved from this uh, storm and tempest at sea but they're still cold they're still in need of food, they're hungry, they're exhausted. Perhaps they're shivering as they are walking onto the beach, wanting some warmth and some, something to drink and some rest. And so in light of this, who comes to them? Who comes to them? The natives from the island meet them. And the text says that these natives from the island of Malta show them what? Unusual kindness. It's an unusual term, unusual kindness. What do they do for these folks who just came off of the ship? They start a fire for them to sit around, a fire where they can now get warm and cook some food over. Uh, The word unusual in this text, though, is not so unusual because consider what these natives were receiving, who these natives were actually receiving. This wasn't just four or five people on a small boat coming off of the sea, shipwrecked or boat wrecked onto the beach, but 276 needy people Floating off of the island, swimming to shore, 276 people. To make sense of that, that is five Greyhound buses full of people at full capacity now coming onto your space. When that happens, I know what I would do. I would run because I have no idea who these people are. I definitely wouldn't stay. But what you find here is not only that, they don't run, but they actually stay and they help them. And who's on this ship? You don't just have soldiers and sailors and and people who are just regular citizens. You have prisoners in chains coming off of this ship. And so, as they sit around this bonfire, the scene focuses in on Paul now. Verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed to let him live. Paul, the humble man that he is, just shipwrecked off of a ship, 
He doesn't just wait around to be served, but he actually goes, he tries to be helpful. He gathers some sticks together, throws them on the bonfire, and what happens when he does this? What happens? An unseen snake that was likely asleep or dormant because of the cold weather is awakened by the heat of the flames of the fire. And what happens? But the, the, the snake, the viper, actually grasps and fastens on to Paul's arm. You think of that, and you just feel bad for this brother because Paul cannot land a break. I mean, how ironic would it be if Paul survived this horrific shipwreck at sea for two weeks? He survived that at sea, but then he comes onto the beach, and then he dies from a snake bite. How ironic would that be? It's sort of the definition of saying, when it rains, it pours. Have you been in that kind of a place before? Where one thing happens to you that is difficult and it's hard and it's, you're wondering why this is happening to you. And then, bam, something else happens to you. Another circumstance in life punches you in the gut and you just feel like, I'm done. I can't. I've got no energy for this. I've already been knocked out and I feel like I'm getting kicked on the ground. And so when this happens, not only is Paul dealing with the snake who decides to fasten on to his arm. But what do we see these unusually kind natives do? They respond by saying, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Their shifting opinion is so striking, right? They welcome them with unusual kindness. The, The snake grabs onto Paul's arm, and all of a sudden he's a murderer. Just like that, their opinion of him changes. They believe, what do they believe? That the gods of the sea may have let him go on the storm. He may have survived that, but not the God of justice. DK, the God of justice, she will not let Paul go. She will not. Because in their minds, this man, Paul, must have done some wrong. So punishment, it's just awaiting him. He he can't run from it forever. The gods will get him. Fate and destiny are waiting, Paul, because the gods will not allow him to get away. So you can call it fate. You can call it karma. You can call it whatever goes around comes around. But these natives believe getting, Paul is getting what is coming to him. Because consider this, though unjustly treated, don't forget, Paul is still in chains. And so as you think about the site, it's not so unusual for them to say this because this guy's coming out in chains. He just got bit by a snake. What's the natural conclusion if you feel like the gods are, are directing everything and that fate and destiny, destiny will meet every person? This man must be a murderer. As you hear that and as you see this scene, this week even as we were in our GCM studying this passage, as we were considering the accusation of Paul being a murderer, someone asked, wait, isn't this accusation true? Isn't this accusation true? Our brother Vivek brought up the question, and we began to think, wait, this accusation, isn't it true? As Paul hears the words, no doubt this man is a murderer. Surely in Paul's own heart, he's thinking, well, yeah, I am. He agrees with the accusation. I am the murderer, the savage Christian killer, the assassin who slaughtered many followers of Jesus Christ. So as Paul gets this accusation, would you notice that he didn't say anything? His silence is striking. Why? 
Because at some level, this is true. Paul is the murderer who is now in chains. Perhaps the gods are right. Perhaps they are coming after him. And so as you picture the scene, Paul stands there, shipwrecked, wet and cold, exhausted and hungry, accused of being a murderer, and to top it all off, the teeth of a viper has fastened to his arm, locked in to his arm. I think it's safe to say that Paul is having a really bad day. This is a really bad day at the office for Paul. And yet, in light of these horrible circumstances, right, shipwreck, snake-bitten, accused of being a murderer, viper attached to your arm, Paul does not seem to be concerned. Paul doesn't seem to be moved or rattled by this moment. Did you get that? Rattled? Snake? Rattled? Yep. First, first service laugh too. You almost want to scream out at Paul and say, Paul, listen, you've got a snake attached to your arm, buddy. Do something. Say something. Do something. And yet you see Paul poised and calm. But what does Paul do in verse 5? It says, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds. And then they said that he was a god. Paul is not rattled by the snake, right? Paul simply shakes the snake off into the fire. Nothing happens to him. How about the natives? It says that they were waiting for him to swell up and die. I mean, isn't that terrible? They are now just watching, awkwardly staring at this man with a snake on his arm, shook it off, and now they're just staring. It says for a long time. How long was that moment? How long were they looking at Paul, waiting for him to just keel over and die? I mean, that's terrible. No one came to his rescue. They're just waiting. Paul, you're going to die soon, and we're just going to watch you croak. I mean, it's an awkward scene. They're awkwardly staring at him, and when he doesn't, they change their tune again, and now what? No longer a murderer, now he is a god. He has somehow become just a normal person to a murderer, now God. What is he now? A god. How fickle, how unstable these folks are in their beliefs. And it makes you think how fickle and unstable we are when we, when we look to the gods, when we look to fate and the stars to figure out what's going on. Just like that, with circumstances changing, they change their tune and their opinion of not only the circumstance, but of this man as well. And it makes you think how fickle it is for us to trust and live our lives based on the changing opinions of others. Because Paul, he, he was in one moment worshipped and then in the next accused of being a murderer and then back and forth. This man, Paul, yet is not shaken. He goes through the emotions of these people and yet Paul is not moved. Paul's faith does not move with changing and shifting circumstances. Because what? He doesn't serve or worship the gods of fate that these people serve. But what is Paul thinking here? As the snake has been taken off, as he survives, thrown into the fire, what is going through Paul's mind right now? I'm still standing. My God is still faithful. And he has promised that I'm going to wind up in Rome. So on to Rome. Paul knows that there is, listen, a sovereign God whom he worships, who is providentially appointing everything in his life. 
So Paul, knowing that, is unmoved. Even when shipwrecked, even when snake-bitten by a snake, he is sure that the God who called him to Rome will see him through to get there. Nothing will prevent him from that. Paul must be thinking, you can accuse me, but I'm no longer a murderer, and I'm certainly not a God, but I was a murderer saved by God, and he will see me through. Paul trusts that in these moments by the bonfire, God is very much in control of his life. It makes us ask the question, what is the bonfire you stand by this morning, struggling to make sense of? What is the fire that you are standing over wondering, I can't make any sense of this. What, what is the reason for this? What is the purpose? Would you see Paul's response? As the text moves from one scene to the next, secondly, we learn that Paul is written into the story of others. Reading from verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place where lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, he received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So as we move into this next scene, what seems to happen is that Paul, the man who they now praise as a god for having survived the snake bite, catches the gaze and the ear of the head honcho of the island of Malta, the big cheese, the one who has the power and influence, the man named Publius, a man with land and wealth and influence. Think about this scene. How is it that Paul, the prisoner in chains, winds up in the private chambers of the most influential man in Malta? How has that happened? And as this has happened, if you were Paul, shipwrecked, in chains, imprisoned, snake-bitten, accused, exhausted, hungry, cold, what would you do when you've landed in a place like this? A place that's sure to have uh, opulence and, and luxury and anything that he could possibly want. What would you do? I know what I would do. I would look for the nearest sauna because I know there's one there. I would look for a hammock. I would get some coffee and some tea and lay down and relax. And I know many of you would be right there next to me. We would clink our gla uh, glasses together with our pinkies raised in the air and take in all of this luxury because you are in the living room of the most influential and wealthy man on the island. But Paul does not do that. Here's what Paul does, reading from verse 8. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this ha had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Paul lands in the living room of Publius, finds out that his father is sick. There's a lot of other sick people on this island. So for Paul, ministry to the people of Malta are now, is now on the script for him. That is on the script for Paul. This isn't for Paul. Kip, kick up your feet and wait for three months on this island because that's how long he'll be on the island. It's, it's not just relax for the time that I'm here and I'm going to wait it out. It's not wrong for us, right? It is right for us to rest and to retreat and to relax and to take a break and to have time. It is right. And yet, in these three months, Paul was not just staying idle, staying back. For Paul, where he was... When he was there, the people whom he was among was always in view with the thought that God has sovereignly appointed me here. At this time, 
in this place with these people. That was always on his mind, no matter where Paul went. Because what happened as a result of Paul doing this work? Verse 8 says that it just so happened that the father of Publius was sick when Paul arrived. So what happens? Paul visits him, lays his hands on him, prays for him, heals him. Then it says that when word spread about this, all who had diseases on the island came to Paul and were healed of their diseases. And though it doesn't say it here, like in other uh, sections of Acts where Peter and Paul and other apostles heal people by the power of God, it always follows a gospel presentation when they point people and present the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. For them to know that the one who healed their bodies has died to heal their very souls was important for them. So not only are you getting your, your body healed, but they are pointing to the one who has come to heal their very souls. And so it was. Three months. Paul is not idle while he's on the island of Malta. Hear this. God in your life and in my life is not just concerned with the macro of our life the big picture, the grand scheme of things. God is concerned even with the details, the small moments of life, the seemingly random and minute aspects of your life. Every sand that's on the shore, every grain of wheat that's in this earth, every ha hair that is on your head has been appointed, set forth by God. And so every step of our lives is not an accident. And I want us to see here that the love of God is seen through the life of Paul for the sake of others. What do I mean? As I heard one preacher say, St. Clair Ferguson, I heard him say this week, do you see what God is doing for the father of Publius? The God of all history is providentially superintending a shipwreck in order that Paul might be brought to his sickbed Speak to him about Jesus and heal him. God, for the sake of reaching this man Publius, puts Paul through a shipwreck, snake bite, so that he might eventually wind up healing this father of Publius, so that he might not only be healed of body, but healed of soul. Through the shipwreck, through the snake bite, entry into Publius's home. There are a million things happening in your life and mine. And I think it's hard for us because we only see what's right in front of us. We only see, what is God doing in my life? Why is God doing this to me? Why am I here? What is God planning for me? And yet, would you know there are a million things at work by the sovereign providence of God that we have no idea why it's happening, where it's happening, to whom it is happening. And yet here, to reach Publius, to heal him, to save him, how does God do it? Through the rocky, difficult, painful, suffering life of Paul. He does so through the life of Paul. Listen, if Paul, when he landed on shore, think of this. When Paul exhausted, landed on shore, wasn't humble enough to gather a few sticks and throw it onto the bonfire. The snake would never have fastened onto his arm. Publius would never have heard of him. And what would result is that perhaps Publius' father would die, never knowing of Jesus Christ, never experiencing the healing of his body. But see the love of God, not only for Paul here, but for Publius and all who are on that island. Not one single detail 
that takes place in Paul's life, takes place in your life, just happens. They are all under the sovereign providence of God, down to the smallest detail of your life. You are written into the story of others because God intended to have you among them during this time in this place. You don't in your mind have to say, what's going to happen 10 years from now? You don't have to look back and say, look what happened 10 years ago. Who is before you now? Who is before you in your circles? Who is at work with you? Who is in your neighborhood? Who is around the dinner table with you? Who are your family? Who are the acquaintances, perhaps even strangers in your life that God providentially, sovereignly has appointed in your life? Between services, after the first service, a woman came up to me, a woman named Laurel, and she came up to me and said, have you been to Malta? And I was like, no, I've never been to Malta. And she said, I've been to Malta. And she said, would you hear this as an encouragement? When I was in Malta, I learned that soon after Paul and Luke and this entourage left that island, a hospital was born. And it seems that their work actually resulted in real good happening. To the point that you got to think, these people who were healed of their sicknesses and their disease pointed to Jesus Christ. What do they do? They open up a hospital. Think of the sovereign providence of God that is at work in all kinds of places in your life and mine that we may never know. Imagine Paul never knew this 2,000 years later and we look back and say, look what God has done. God is at work sovereignly, providentially through even your worst days, through your worst moments. You may never know on the side of eternity and yet we believe because we see in the life of Paul even 2,000 years later, what God is producing through his work and through the steps and missteps that has taken place in his life. And so, as this scene shifts to our final scene, verse 10 tells us that as Paul sets sail again, the natives, they come again to send him off. These natives that welcomed him, called him a murderer, called him a god, now they wind up back as Paul and his entourage are getting ready to set sail to Rome. And they're not there just to say farewell and to wish them well, but they come and put on board whatever they needed for the journey ahead to Rome. Think of that. These, these natives who had no idea who this man was or who these people were now provide every resource that he needs to set sail to Rome. One preacher wrote of this scene, Never did a Roman prisoner sail to Rome so bountifully supplied for the journey. Think of the providence of God, even in this small detail that God is providing for them. And then finally, we arrive to our last and third scene. So lastly and quickly, I want us to see that not only is Paul written into the story of others, but third, others are written into the story of Paul. Reading from verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. And sort of a side note, these twin gods are the sons of Zeus, Castor and Pollux. They're the ones who are supposed to protect you at sea. And you can almost imagine Paul boarding this ship, sort of chuckling to himself, knowing that his God has protected him at sea. His, his God is the one who not per, only protects at sea, but he's created the seas, ruling over the seas. And so reading on in verse 12, 
putting in at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So picture the scene. They set sail from Rome from Malta, to Rome from Malta. They set sail. They navigate the seas once again, headed there. And if you even today or when you get home, type into Google Maps, you can see this long journey at sea from Malta all the way to Puteoli, which is in Naples, close to Naples. And when they get to Puteoli, they finally, they've come to, to Rome, they've come to Italy. And who meets them there as they arrive, as, as Paul now sets his feet on the grounds of Italy? Christian brothers come and meet him there. And then finally, it says that Paul gets to Rome. And, and Luke, the writer of Acts, sort of glosses over this, but you've got to think for chapters for a long time now. This is what Paul was setting out to do. This is what Jesus Christ himself actually promised. You're going to get to Rome, Paul. You're going to make it there. Take courage. You're going to get there if you remember as we preached weeks back. Paul is finally at Rome after imprisonment and shipwreck and a snake bite. He's finally at Rome. And when he sets his foot onto Rome, who meets him there? More Christian brothers and sisters. As far as places called the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns, there's no automobiles, there's no bullet train. You've got to think these guys are traveling days and days to meet Paul, to meet him there. And what does Paul say when he sees them? Verse 15 says, On seeing them, Paul thanked God and he took courage. Here's what I want us to hear from this scene. When the chips are down in your life, when we're laid out and we have nothing left in us, it is an immense and sovereign providence of God to have Christian friendship. When you are laid out and you have nothing left inside of you, Christian friends are a providence of God for your life. The Greek translated more accurately in, in verse 14 says, not only did the brothers in, invite Paul and those with him to stay with them. The Greek is more talking about they begged Paul. They pleaded with Paul, let us have the privilege of hosting and caring for you, Paul, and for your companions. Can you imagine the privilege of taking in the apostle Paul? Can you imagine this privilege and what's more it is these very Roman Christians to whom Paul wrote an entire letter, the book of Romans. Paul never saw them. Paul never knew them. But he wrote a letter to the Roman Christians. In fact, Paul opens his letter to the Romans by saying in chapter 1, verse 10, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I will now at last succeed in coming to you. This letter was written years ago. That I would succeed in coming to you somehow by God's will. For I long to see you. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul wrote that letter to these very people. And look, years later, look, look at the prayer that God answers. And look what happens. Hear that. Paul prays that if somehow, some way, he could reach them, he longs to see them somehow. Did Paul ever know it was going to be through a shipwreck? Did Paul ever know it was going to be through a snake bite, an accusation, in chains? He says, somehow, if God's wills it, that I would see you. And so, by any means, God has brought him there, that they might be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. And the text tells us, so they were. Paul's desire, Paul's prayer is now realized. And as they are before this great juggernaut of the Christian faith, the one who pens a letter like Romans filled with profound truths of what it looks like to be a Christian, what must they be feeling now as Paul meets them in Rome? What would they even say to exhausted and worn out Paul? Because Paul is not God. Paul is not supernatural. Paul is a man like you and I. He feels pain. He feels suffering. He has doubts. We've seen his doubts and confusion and his fear and trembling as he goes to cities. What would they now say to exhausted and worn out Paul? Perhaps they would say, we know, Paul, that it's been a difficult and trying journey. But would you trust in the God who said he would bring you here? You're here. Take courage, Paul. Paul, you must hear of the fruit of the letter that you wrote to us. Unbelievers are coming to faith. Believers are persevering in their faith. The church is established. Paul, take courage. Your work is not in vain, brother. And, and so you would imagine that whatever encouragement they brought to him, because notice the words, it says that he took courage. It's, he received courage. They gave him courage. Surely that words, those words of, of consolation and reminders would bring consolation and courage to weary and exhausted Paul. Christian friendship is consoling. Christian friendship is reassuring. I know it's challenging. I know it's difficult to establish meaningful friendships. I know it's difficult to sustain meaningful friendships. I know there's brokenness, perhaps especially in Christian friendships. But Seven Mile Road, hear that these are some of the means through which God cares for your heart and soul. And so while we would tempt, be tempted to curl in or not, or not seek out friendships or not be vulnerable to the people in our lives, would you know that these are the means, some of the means in which God intends to care for your very soul? The church is a place where you both receive courage and give courage, where we take each other in, where we lift each other up. When all the chips are down, when we're laid out on the ground, we have nothing left in us. God, in his sovereign providence, intends for you to be in deep friendship with some of the very brothers and sisters in this room today. These are those who is God's providence to your life. These are means of grace for you. As you step back and look at this kind of a community that God establishes, there is no other community like this in the world. 
for it is divinely appointed by God for, for one another to be the very means of God's providence for us in the midst of a broken world. As we close out this first half of Acts 28, I want us to consider just one quick thing that we may have overlooked or perhaps forgotten to bring into perspective what God is doing here in this scene, sort of to tie it all together. Would you remember that at the beginning of Acts 27, there was a man who was named there, a centurion, a man named Julius. Julius was in charge of bringing Paul to, to Rome to, to make sure this prisoner was safely brought to Rome. And as I was reading and hearing this week, it made me think, this man is not a Christian. This man is not a companion. And as other preachers were, were speaking, it almost seemed like, what is, what is going through the mind of Julius as he's witnessing all of these things that are happening? Uh, what is Julius thinking as he is a witness, a, a firsthand witness to all of these dramatic events that are happening in Acts 27 and 28? Think of it. He's tasked to bring Paul to Rome. Suddenly, a life-threatening storm happens. But the prisoner in chains takes control during the storm and brings them miraculously and safely to shore by the hand of God. They then land on this unknown island. No one knows where they are, and it's called Malta. And for some reason, for some reason, the islanders show incredible and unusual, the text says, kindness. But Paul, the prisoner, even amid their kindness, gets bitten by a snake. Surely Julius is thinking it's over for Paul. But the man doesn't die. He just shakes it off and throws the snake into the fire. He's unmoved. Then, eventually, they set sail for Rome, and these very natives bring him all the resources that they need, strangers to Paul. And then what happens next? Julius finds himself with Paul in chains in the very chambers of the most influential man on Malta, into the private quarters of Publius. And when he gets there, perhaps Julius is thinking, all right, Paul's going to relax, but Paul doesn't. He gets up. He doesn't stay silent. He doesn't sit back and kick his feet up. But Paul, still in chains, heals the father of Publius, and then everyone on the island is cured. And as Paul and the soldiers with Julius are ready to set sail to Rome, who comes and give them, gives them resources? These very natives. He then sees Paul, warmly greeted by Christians who are strangers to him. Paul's never seen them, never spoken with them. He doesn't know them. And yet Paul is embraced with love and a kiss and with encouraging words and with weeping. And you've, you've got to imagine that Paul perhaps asks Julius, listen, why don't you come stay with these Christians? They... They're really hospitable. You should come stay with us. Paul's still in chains. This centurion in charge of him, perhaps he has said because it seems like he follows Paul where he's going. Perhaps Julius himself is saying, perhaps I will join you. I'll join you in the homes of these Christians. And as you are going through and you consider the perspective that Julius must have, wouldn't he be wondering, what is going on here? How has all of these events transpired like this? Shipwreck to snakebite to unusual kindness to, to escaping death to Publius and healing to unusual kindness again and then Christian brothers and sisters showing love, strangers. What is Julius thinking? How is it that Paul the prisoner is where he is? And so it makes us also ask the question, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian here, 
we stand and wonder, who is the God of Paul that carries him through to this point? And Acts tells us, it is the sovereign, loving God who sees and sets all things in motion for the good of those who love him and for his glory. It is that God that we see in Acts. This is the God that Paul believes in and that the scriptures call you in this moment to believe in, wherever you are in your life. Christians, we don't believe in just the whim of destiny and fate that we are given away to just random chance in the world or to the gods up there somewhere. This, dear brother, dear sister, is our Father's world. We are His children. We are appointed by Him to walk every road we travel with purpose while being held in the very hollow of His hands. He has not left us through imprisonment, through shipwreck, beatings, and snake bites, through your confusion, relocation, loss, and doubts, perhaps even wanderings away from God. Remember our brother Paul, who took courage when his feet landed safely on Roman soil, knowing that the God who promised has seen him through to this very moment. He took courage. He thanked God for he did not let Paul go. But every step, every stop, Every detour was within the sovereign providence of God. And look at the scene. Paul is still in chains, still a prisoner. And yet, he is the most free man of all, for he is within the will of God. And dear brothers, this morning, so are you. Dear sisters, this morning, so are you. So take heart. Thank God. Take courage. The Lord is with us. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that by your sovereign providence, that these moments were not wasted. These moments were not just fateful. These moments were not just by chance. There is a God right now who sees us, who loves us. There is a God right now who is sovereignly even appointing the breath that we breathe, the, the response of our hearts right now. Would you break into our reality right now in these moments and cause us to believe this? Cause us to believe that the very place that we are in right now, whether it's imperfect or not, whether it's where we want to be or not, the circumstances we find ourselves in, whether they are enjoyable or not, God, you love us. You appoint all things by your sovereign providence for our good. And we have no idea what you're doing, but we can trust you. Help us this morning to believe this. Help us this morning to believe that you are doing a work in our lives, in the lives of others, that we will never see perhaps on this side of eternity, but that we can trust that you are doing and you are accomplishing. For you, even in sending Jesus Christ to this wor world, you were putting things in motion so that we could be standing here and sitting here right now believing in this very gospel, a truth and a, and a story that we never could have imagined in our own minds. And so help us to believe even in these moments that you are at work in our hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.